Please pray with me. Holy God, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit amongst us at this time, that in these words to come we may hear, we may hear your word. All this we pray in your holy name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, this month marks the 500th anniversary of a true inflection point in world history. This month is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, an event that changed Western Europe and, by extension, the whole world. And so for this month, during these five weeks of October, we are exploring different aspects of the Reformation, of what got it started and what it might be able to tell us today in 21st century Texas. Now, in 1517, when Luther took that parchment of 95 theses and marched his way down to the castle door in Wittenberg, not only was he launching a movement, but he was soon to become a pawn in Geopolitical, and a geopolitical struggle uh, that was as important on that day as, as any other. And you can't really understand the success of the Reformation or the success of Luther or what was going on without understanding a little bit of this background. You see, by 1518, the year after, uh, Maximilian I, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, was ill. And everyone knew that his end was coming soon which meant that the greatest position, the greatest political position, the most powerful political position in Western Europe was about to become open. And the way that position was filled since the 13th century was by election. And there were seven electors who elected the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, of those seven electors, one of them, to Martin Luther's great Uh, Great great good fortune was Frederick the Wise, who was his great mentor and protector. And because he had that crucial vote, one of those crucial seven votes, to vote for the Holy Roman Emperor, that gave him, and by extension Luther, uh, a lot of leeway to do what he wanted. But three of these votes, three of these seven votes, were actually cast by churchmen, by the archbishops of certain very powerful sees in the German area and one of which was vacant in 1514, the Archbishopric of Mainz. Now, this is where all this political stuff gets pretty interesting. So a different one of the electors, who was uh, Margrave of Brandenburg, I love that title, Margrave of Brandenburg. Uh, The Margrave of Brandenburg, he wanted to get his younger brother to be the next Archbishop of Mainz because he wanted to have two of the votes of the seven in his own pocket. And so in order to do it, Uh, Joachim went down to Rome and went to the Pope and said, all right, Pope, how much is it going to cost? And the Pope gave him a figure. (laughs) And Joachim went went to uh, Jacob Fugger, who was the uh, head of the famous Fugger banking family, the wealthiest family in Europe at the time, uh, got a massive loan from Fugger and was able to pay off the Pope in order to secure the Archbishopric of Mainz for his younger brother, Albrecht. Now, uh, in exchange, uh, the Pope allowed him to raise some funds through the selling of papal indulgences. And again, uh, so it was Albrecht, the Archbishop of Mainz, who was selling indulgences, half of which went to go pay Jacob Fugger, and half of which would then go to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So when John Tetzel, the best indulgence salesman, was hired by Albrecht, he found himself outside Wittenberg in 1517, and that's why he was selling indulgences. He was selling indulgences 
because the Archbishop of Mainz had been sold, uh, had been bartered away, had been uh, put on the auction block and given to the highest bidder. And as a result, you had this selling of indulgences. Yeah, I know, I'm shaking my head too, Shirley. It's amazing. (laughs) This practice of selling church offices uh, has the fancy church name of simony. And it comes from this passage in Acts 8 that Doug read out a little while before. Again, in Acts 8, we have Simon Magus, Simon this magician, uh, who is enamored of Philip and uh, becomes a Christian, or at least a nominal Christian. And then he sees the apostle Peter laying on hands and conveying the Holy Spirit. He wants that power. And so Simon offers money for Peter to sell him that power. Peter then condemns him uh, as a sinner and asks him, Uh, to seek forgiveness. Uh, But that's where we get this title, simony, from. This became, even though you don't hear the title very often, this was a very common word back in the Middle Ages because of how common this practice was. Now, back in the Dark Ages, if you can can move your heads back to this era of the Dark Ages, when you had the decline of the Western Roman Empire and the rise of feudalism, if you were a local lord, one of your rights you saw was to pick who was going to be the local bishop. And oftentimes the local priests. That was your right as a lord. And as the bishoprics became more wealthy and had more lands attached to them, uh, this was a big deal. And so people would pay money to the local lord in order to get control of a particular see, simony. And this practice was, was, was widespread throughout Europe. Uh, until the 11th century when a series of reforming popes, most prominently Gregory VII, uh, insisted that the pope actually has the power to appoint bishops and archbishops and not the local lord. And they condemned in strongest terms the selling of church offices. Of course, as we see with Albrecht, uh, the selling of church offices still ended up going on just through the pope rather than through the local leaders. And again, this is, this, 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 is, this is important background for why the Reformation took off the way it did. There was this perceived corruption in the church, and the corruption, according to people like Martin Luther, emanated from Rome. And I have to say, the popes did not do themselves any favors in the time leading up to the Reformation. Famously, in, uh, for much, much of the 14th century, uh, the papacy was located not in Rome, but in the French city of Avignon. And this was perceived by most people, correctly so, uh, that, the, uh, that the Pope was no more of a puppet than the King of France. It was basically a puppet of the King of France during much of the 14th century, which certainly undermines the spiritual authority of the Pope. Then, this is where it gets even better, <laughs> in 1377, uh, the then Pope says, no, I'm moving back to Rome, and moves back to Rome from Avignon. That's all great, but then he dies the next year, and then during the election for the Pope, there are all these riots, this Pope gets elected, and then the, col- the same College of Cardinals said, oh no, we made a mistake, and then they elect a second Pope. So in 1378, they find themselves with two different Popes elected by the same College of Cardinals, neither of whom were willing to step down. This situation persisted from 1378 until 1415. You had a whole generation plus where you had two different Popes, both claiming authority, both having their own College of Cardinals, both claiming all sorts of powers, uh, spiritual and otherwise. This also did not do much good for promoting the power of the papacy. To make things even better, to try and resolve the situation, in 1409, they had a council in Pisa where they deposed the other popes and elected someone else pope, but the other two refused to step down, so then you had three popes. (laughs) For a six-year period, you had three different popes 
uh, who were validly elected by a college of cardinals until finally the Council of Constance scrapped all three of them and started over from scratch, and you finally had the end of this great Western schism. You would think that things would get better from there, but they didn't. <laughs> and one of the most notorious aspects of the Renaissance papacy, uh, in 1492, uh, Reginaldo Borgia was uh, elected uh, pope and took the name Alexander VI. Alexander VI was supposedly very charming. He was a great career bureaucrat in Rome. Uh, he also had eight children uh, through uh, several different wives. Uh, not only did he have uh, these children, he was shameless about putting them in positions of power, and everyone knew they, that, they were, uh, that they were Alexander's kids. Uh, this was so scandalous that, in fact, Showtime made a series about it a couple of years ago called Borgia, starring Jeremy Irons. So if you want to go see about this firsthand you can go see this on Showtime. This, this actually happened. And then, after Alexander VI uh, died, he was replaced for, a very, for just a few months by one pope, but then replaced by a guy named Julius II, who got the nickname the Warrior Pope. Here was a pope that spent a large part of his papacy defending the papal states uh, in Italy from foreign conquerors and actually was known to don armor and actually go onto the battlefield uh, along with his troops. You can imagine this also doesn't elevate the spiritual respectability of the popes. Well, after Julius died, he was replaced uh, by Leo X. <laughs> Leo X had the good fortune of being one of the sons of Lorenzo de' Medici, uh, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men of the Renaissance. And as a result, Leo was made cardinal at the ripe age of 13, before he could even vote in the College of Cardinals. Uh, and when he was elected pope... Uh, in 1513, when he was elected pope, he wasn't even an ordained priest. He had to get ordained after he was elected. And then once uh, Leo became pope, he, had, uh, he supposedly had this great line where, uh, well, now that we've been elected pope, or now that we've been elected to the papacy, let us enjoy it. And Leo X was well known for uh, being a great patron of the arts uh, and for spending absurd amounts of money which made, the, which made him very open to selling the Archbishopric of Mainz in order to pay for not only the completion of St. Peter's Basilica, but all the rest of his various and sundry expenditures. This is the Renaissance papacy. No wonder why you had people looking askance at it. And things weren't much better for a traveler to Rome. In 1510, famously, Martin Luther uh, took this great pilgrimage to Rome, and he was all excited about going to Rome in 1510, and he shows up, uh, and it was this uh, really epic disappointment for him. Because here he found, uh, everywhere he looked, there were these priests who were just rattling off mass after mass after mass, for which they were getting paid. So here they are, rattling off these different masses, and Martin Luther saying that these, these, these priests were so good at saying the masses that they could literally say three masses in the time it took him to say one. And they were openly uh, critical of what they were doing, knowing it didn't have uh, particularly strong spiritual value. This shocked and horrified Luther uh, and made him even more strongly disposed against Rome uh, when, the split, when the split came. So this background, this background of corruption, which was well known to many people, uh, I mean, Erasmus even wrote one of his famous books uh, during the time of Leo X, mocking the corruptions in the church. Apparently, Leo X thought it was a great book. This is a background for what happened. Now, when we, when we try and consider what was going on here, what the fundamental problem is, it's tempting to point out money as being the issue. I think money certainly was a big issue and a background issue. Money can be something that 
uh, as a spiritual and moral pitfall for all of us, and certainly for any institution. But I think when you get right down to it, the core issue, the central issue that was going on here, was the question of salvation. This is where I think the rubber hit the road. The issue was is that people were obviously concerned about their eternal salvation. They were concerned about whether they went to heaven or hell. And for quite some time, as I noted last week, uh, it was said that if, you, uh, if a priest was saying a mass on a high altar or even a low altar, if a priest was saying a mass, they were actually reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus. And in that reenacting of the sacrifice of Jesus, that, that very act of, of saying the mass had atoning value. So in other words, by saying, by saying a mass on behalf of someone, you could atone for that person's sins. That's one of the ways that you could be saved. So if you had a lot of money, what you would do is you would donate money to, say, a monastery, uh, and in exchange, they would promise to say a certain number of masses on behalf of you and your family in perpetuity. So it was this setup of salvation, which is one of the main drivers <clears throat> of the wealth of the church during the Middle Ages, People would give lots of money and lots of land to the church in exchange for the saying of masses, in exchange for helping them and their family make it to heaven. It was all based on this theory of salvation. Same thing with indulgences. So indulgences, the the concept of indulgences is is fairly straightforward. Basically what it says is that the, the Pope has a treasury of merit. In other words, because of the life and work of Jesus and the life and work of the saints, there is, this, there is this big treasury of good works that's built up. There's this treasury of good things that's built up, and the Pope, because, according to Matthew 16, he has the power to bind and lose sins, the Pope has control over this treasury of merit and how it's dispersed. And so the Pope can, at various points, you know, offer an indulgence uh, to wipe away someone's sins from this treasury of merit. And it was just a very short step to actually selling indulgences from the offering indulgences. And then that ended up being a fairly slippery slope that took us down to 1517. But the point here is that the question is about salvation. And as soon as salvation can be monetized, you find yourself with a problematic situation. We actually see that today with certain Christians the so-called prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel, in its classic sense, says, what is salvation in the prosperity gospel? Salvation is health, long life, and wealth. That's salvation. That's your goal. Health, long life, wealth. That's what the prosperity gospel is all about. And how do you get it? How do you get salvation? You give money to the church. The more money you give up to God, the more benefits of salvation you'll get. You write a bigger check, you'll live longer, have more wealth, have better health. The prosperity gospel. Now Luther, again, Luther's main insight is he upended this whole process of salvation. For Luther, what was salvation? Salvation was by grace. It was a free gift. Didn't cost you a darn thing. It's free. God's giving it to you. The work was done by Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that work is all done on your behalf. And you can see why Luther was such an issue for the church. (laughs) His preaching about the nature of salvation undermined the entire economic system upon which the medieval church was based. That causes problems. Here's the fascinating thing, or at least one of the fascinating things. As a result of salvation becoming a gift, 
a free gift that God's offering to you. If it's not something that you have to uh, work for or earn, but it's there, it then changes what people, how people saw the Christian vocation. So in 1522, in January 1522 in Wittenberg, the, the city council in Wittenberg, I found this fascinating, one of the things they did as part of this big overhaul of faith in Germany, one of the things they did, they changed how they dealt with the issue of poverty. In January 1522, the Wittenberg City Council passed a series of regulations that overhauled how that worked because out of their Christian commitments. What they decided to do was, as opposed to, there was always people begging, including a lot of monks begging, they outlawed begging because they didn't think it was a very good way to deal with who actually had needs. And instead, they collected a common purse, they collected a common uh, poor chest that then they would be able to give out to those in need based on who they knew, who was actually what their need really was. So you didn't get money based on how well you begged or how ratty your clothes looked. You got given money based on what your actual need was. They also ended up... uh, they also ended up giving low-interest loans to artisans as part of this. No joke. This is like a micro-loan program back in 1522. It's flabbergasted to read this. All to give people a chance to be able to get ahead and lift themselves out of poverty. They also gave, uh, they also gave provisions for free education for people who were poor so that they could have more opportunity. This was all part of this reformation change that Luther was bringing about. As soon as you change the nature of salvation, you change that whole equation, it actually changes how you, foresee what it, how, you, how, you, how you perceive what it means to be a Christian disciple. Now, this brings us to the present day. Uh, we in present-day America, of course, uh, there have, have many pressing issues. One of the most obvious issues uh, that, that, we, that we face are the uh, fall, is, is the fallout from globalization, and specifically a neoliberal economic outlook on globalization. In our 21st century society, the reality is that there are a lot of people who get left behind in our economic system. Those people who get left behind, shockingly, get mad. And we see what's going on today is what's happening to that. It's all over the world. You see this happening in Europe, you see it happening in Turkey, you see it happening in the Philippines, you see it happening in the United States. People are mad, and they're turning to different options. And you see, you know, one of the disturbing things in the 2016 election is that you see this rise of people both on the right and the left proposing much more extreme solutions, having much, more, uh, having much greater tendency to blame others for problems. I mean, Donald Trump was elected largely on people blaming immigrants for their problems, blaming bad trade deals for their problems rather than trying to ask some, some harder questions. And this is where, again, the church has just fallen down on the job. When people look at the church today, who are non-Christians, how do they see the church responding to these things? I mean, this is, talk about, this is, like, this is like 1517 all over again. You see the church being obsessed with you know, uh, same-sex marriage issues. You talk to anyone under the age of 25, and they'd be like, what are you talking about? How do I take the church seriously? Or in the midst of all these globalization issues, the issues, real issues of capitalism, where's the church's voice? You know, I, I, I mean, I, I can't, can't help but be cynical here, but I, I, am, I tend to be. You know, again, you drive on, you know, Shepherd right past the West End Church, this, you know, big growing church right there. There's a big sign out front. And I don't remember the exact words, but it's basically like, you know, you come here to meet good friends, have good music, and have a good time, basically. 
That's how they're advertising the church. Uh, come here and you have fun. You meet good people. That's what it's about. How, is, how are we responding to the needs, of, the needs of the present day? This is where I would propose, I think one thing that's needed for us in this present era so that we can re- reclaim our Christian voice is to say what we need uh, fundamentally is a Christian capitalism. As odd as that might sound. Capitalism is very effective for producing goods. Capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than any other system. Capitalism has produced more scientific advances and research than any other system. Capitalism has been a net benefit uh, for society unquestionably. At the same time, capitalism is, can you know, judge each individual by their economic output. Not based on any kind of moral worth. Capitalism can grind people down and leave them behind. It doesn't care in the least if that happens. If you're not born with the right skills, the right opportunities... It's very easy to get left behind or crushed down by capitalism. You want to see what unregulated capitalism does? Look at late 19th century United States. Look at places in the developing world. You can see what it looks like. Clearly, unregulated capitalism is not what we need. And we need Christian voices to stand up and say, how can we make this system work for everybody? That's part of what the church needs to do. This is a a crying out moment. This is a moment where we can say, you know, now that we can get, now that we have this great gift of salvation, we have this great gift of uh, work of God, how can we be the church as a true church? How can, we, how can we reform the same way that Luther and others called on the church to reform back in 1517? And the great thing is, is that we're ideally placed to do this. Fourth largest city in the country, a city that's actually open to new ideas and new things. We have... Uh, Potentially, we're on the cusp of some, you know, one thing that helps bring forth creative ideas is actually competitive politics. You know, we're standing in the 7th Congressional District. This is one of a few districts that's going to be a competitive congressional district. Regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, that means that people who are running for office actually will listen to you. Usually they don't. This time they will. This is a big opportunity. Similarly, if we can have a competitive Senate race next year, then maybe people will actually listen to what you have to say. And there'll be a chance to make a difference. We have an opportunity here to be involved in stuff like Jennifer was talking about a couple weeks ago in terms of affordable housing issues. We can stand up and be that bold voice. We have to because if the church doesn't do it, then people will just keep looking at the church and say, you're completely useless. You're not doing anything. It might be 500 years since the Reformation happened. But it doesn't mean that we can't still be learning the lessons of the Reformation. Let's think about what it means to be a bold church, to be a true church of God. We have this great gift of salvation, this great good news that God loves you, that God is there, that God is offering eternal life to you. Now with that great news in your soul, what are we going to do with it?